This is Live from Ukraine, a conversation with Ukrainian voices taped live on Twitter Spaces. To join future audiences, follow me at Benjamin Wittes. You are listening to Live from Ukraine, uh, a highly experimental podcast from Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and I am coming to you live from the Barrett Prettyman Courthouse in Washington, D.C., where I'm taking a break from during the Michael Sussman trial. The good folks at National Public Radio have allowed me to use their little audio closet, <clears throat> excuse me, um, for this, uh, this Twitter spaces. And I'm joined by uh, Melania Podolyak, uh, who is coming to us. Where are you coming to us from, Melania? Currently in Kiev. Currently in Kiev. And have you been there uh, for the entirety of the war? Um, no, I have been based largely in Lviv, where I have been coordinating a work um, of a warehouse from Sahi Pratula Foundation. We are concerned with military and humanitarian aid, so I have been more useful there. Um, but now, since the circumstances have changed and um, the situation has allowed me to travel a bit, I spent some fair amount of time in Kiev at the headquarters here. Excellent. So as she just says, uh, uh, Melania is with the Serhi Petula Foundation, which is doing military and humanitarian aid uh, in the context of the current uh, conflict. Uh, before the war, she was a media consultant and uh, she has a YouTube channel and her Twitter feed is uh, uh, both in Ukrainian, which I read with the, the help of Google Translate and in English, one of the most useful and helpful uh, Twitter feeds out there <clears throat> for following uh, events and for uh, uh, opinionated, witty, and uh, very helpful commentary on them. Um, so a quick uh, administrative note, um, the Live from Ukraine podcast feed is now up. You can find it wherever you get uh, your podcasts. And uh, you should, whether you listen to us on uh, Twitter spaces or not, please subscribe to it, rate it, and review it, because that's how we get it out to other uh, people. Uh, so, um, Melania, uh, let's start with uh, your activities during the war and, and how you came to be doing them. Uh, where were you when the, the current phase of the war started? And how did you end up in Lviv doing uh, uh, work for the for the foundation? So, um, yes, uh, when the war started, I was in Lviv. Um, actually, the day, the night before, uh, we were um, sitting with our colleagues, friends who are currently in the Ukrainian military. And uh, we have this conversation that, you know, uh, we actually had, I was the non-believer till the very second, this is the last second that the war was going to begin, but we had these conversations that my friends wanted to join military ASAP, so uh, we said our goodbyes, like a conversation, um, and uh, another friend of mine who's actually working with me in the warehouse, he was driving from Kiev, he was uh, already evacuating um, a friend of his because they had you know, their own feelings about this, that they thought the war was imminent. So I was waiting for them and I did not sleep that night because of it, because I was seeing people off, inviting people to spend like a night at my home because of the long road. And um, I listened to the Putin's first speech. Um, and uh, to be honest, it was really tense in the beginning. But then, you know, uh, 
it kind of gave me a feeling of relief since he said nothing concrete. Everything was very abstract, that long non-history lesson on Ukraine and whatnot. And then so I just kept on my, you know, whatever I was doing, sitting in the kitchen talking uh, to my boyfriend. And then um, the second speech came and we listened to that. And maybe a minute after that, I got first uh, messages from people in Kyiv and on Twitter saying that there have been explosions in Kyiv and in Mariupol, Kharkiv and whatnot. And then we got our first air raid siren, maybe about an hour after. And then the first explosions in Lviv also, nearby Lviv. Um, and uh, I, I kind of froze for a minute there because you really don't know what to do in that very moment. Um, but my first thought was, okay, I should put on some pants because I was still in my pajamas. And we started working. Um, I was contacted by uh, big U.S. media that I have been uh, talking to prior to invasion. Um, people from uh, MSNBC, from Fox News, and whatnot. They wanted updates from the you know, from from. So I was. That was the the very beginning of this media campaign of bringing awareness and informing the public and uh, the free world about the situation on the ground. And then a couple of days later. I said he Pratula, the um, founder of the foundation. We have he is a very famous Ukrainian volunteer. Has been supplying soldiers with military aid since 2014, and we've known each other prior to war. So he contacted me and he said that you know we need a, a warehouse or some kind of an office in Lviv since uh, the road from the border to Lviv and then from Lviv to Kiev has been problematic since. Russian soldiers were already on the ground and it was ridiculously dangerous to transfer the stuff we bought and procured and were able to procure from, from Europe. So we kind of, in a matter of days, we have set up this, uh, first was an office, then was a warehouse, uh, found volunteers and started accumulating uh, military aid uh, that included, uh, you know, sites, bulletproof vests, Kevlar helmets, drones and other stuff. And then we kind of, uh, we were growing, obviously, so naturally we, we have uh, founded this uh, humanitarian uh, division of our foundation that is concerned with helping, uh, you know, civilian population with food, with hygienic products, with medication. Um, and so that's how, how the war and that's how our work has, has become largely. Now, uh, who were you the day before that happened? Um, I, I, I was many things. Um, uh, as I, as you have said already, when you were introducing me, I, I worked, um, as a media consultant, uh, for, Various. Um, so I worked in the Lviv City Council for a while at the um, uh, COVID response uh, division. And then before that, I worked at Vrhovna Rada, the parliament of you. Uh, I was involved in elections a lot. And mostly my work has been um, had to do with political, political communications of sorts. Um, also, um, the YouTube channel I have created had um, mostly to do with explaining legislation uh, corruption and whatnot so i have been i have never i've never been a, a military or humanitarian volunteer um so that was a relatively new experience for me um so but yeah my, my work has been largely concerned with, with media and tell us about your youtube channel what what uh what sort of uh youtube video your your twitter feed uh says i, I think uh, somewhat wryly that you used to you used to you do YouTube, but now there's a war. Uh, what did you used to do on YouTube? So um, largely explanatory uh, explanatory videos that had to do with current events in in Ukraine. Uh, funnily criticizing the government and President Zelensky in particular um, pretty harshly. Um, but my my main area of concern and what I was most interested in is was um, and still probably will be, I hope, you know, uh, trying to explain to, to, to the audience of my age and a bit older 
about how how certain things work, how certain procedures work, some some bills that have have been introduced, some um, you know risky uh, situations our government has put our country in before the war. So mostly had to do with explaining internal politics of Ukraine to to young Ukrainians. Later on, uh, when I had some time, I still probably will I will still keep doing it. I hope I had a live. Um, um uh, like a vi- video that was like Ukraine Q&A in English so i think that is something that is that i should be i will try to do more now because now that is of priority and now everything has changed and our government is in a very um difficult situation so for now we have a an enemy that we have to destroy together so i think now i will still work more on on, on issues like explanatory kind of uh content for for foreigners that have questions about ukraine before we get to uh, back to your current activities, I'm I'm interested in your uh, uh, observation that you uh, your in your YouTube role you were very critical of uh, President Zelensky. Um, I'm uh, you know for a lot of uh, Americans and Westerners the political fault lines within Ukraine are kind of opaque to us, uh, and I'm interested in. Uh, what what were the nature of your criticisms and to what extent. Uh, uh, are they s- still valid at this point, or are, do you consider yourselves among his yourself among his supporters at this point? Um, it's a difficult question. I think my my concerns will still be valid, but after the war, because well, my biggest concern has always been that our president, um, due to his relative, uh, he was still young and inexperienced, has surrounded himself with some questionable people beforehand. And um, again, we do have, we, we, we used to, and we, I, I, I don't know if I should use the word we still do because everything has changed in Ukraine and the situation is completely different now. But we used to have issues with the matters of rule of law, uh, judicial reform, uh, um, legislation of any kind, corruption, obviously. So so um, I, 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 as an active member of the civic society in Ukraine, I obviously had issues since it's not a criticism for the sake of criticism, uh, so to speak. It's just uh, our my, my willingness to kind of, you know, help bring Ukraine public attention to these issues so these issues could be resolved. And, uh, you know, that these um, issues, you know, that so the, the government, especially and other activists, know kind of these weak spots and we have to work with. And obviously criticizing the government for wrong moves is normal and is a, um, you know, is, is, is natural to any democracy. So before the war, Ukraine is a very young, um, you know, we only had, it sounds weird, but we only had 30 years of our independence to figure some of these things out. So it's just, it's a regular thing that I think every civics activist in every country does. It's kind of this watchdog sort of role. And uh, every government in a free country should be criticized when doing something wrong. But now, obviously, um, all of these things, I mean, I still have my share of doubts and I still observe certain things that I might not agree with. But then we have to, you know, um, our priorities are different now. Now, uh, as a citizen and as a person, um, uh, I have to and I feel like I should and I gladly am supporting our president, our government, who have shown some um, amazing transformations. And uh, I'm actually happy he is our president in this situation. I think uh, he's doing very well. So uh, we will figure all of these problems later. And I promise you and every Ukrainian I know that has been active in this field, we will be keeping our eye on and and helping our government in fixing our, you know, everyday problems. But that will come later when we win the war. So that, you know, that's just my position for now. I have, uh, you know, during 
during the last administration, uh, which was a, a, a difficult period for many Americans, although not remotely on the scale of what you guys are going through, I actually urged something similar domestically that all Americans who believe in democracy should put aside whatever political differences they have on a temporary basis in order to confront uh, the threats that we face to democracy. So what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, we had a, without a war, without, without being invaded, uh, there's actually a, a very similar tone to some of the things that I've urged domestically here. So tell, tell us about the Sergi Petula Foundation. Uh, who is Sergi Petula and, and, uh, and, what, is, uh, uh, and what, what is the, uh, the mission of the foundation? Uh, you, you mentioned it's you know, doing, uh, collecting a lot of uh, military and humanitarian aid. How is it funded? What's, who, who's behind it? So, um, in so he, you see, um, um, a TV host. Uh, he's a very famous Ukrainian personality. And um, uh, in 2014, when the war has begun, he is starting using. Uh, he started using his, uh, um, you know, fame and his, uh, you know, people. People uh, actually liked him very much to kind of address, uh, you know, the issues we had with our military and started collecting money on his Patreon. At some point, I think before the war, he was uh, number one Ukrainian Patreon account uh, in regard to amount of money he was receiving donations. So, um, and he was uh, systematically helping the um, military units uh, in the Donbass region um, uh, with that with those donations. And um, later on, he has established a Sahih Pratula Foundation that in its original form was supposed to take care of uh, humanitarian projects of a lot. So like um, certain groups of individuals, uh, children, uh, uh, you know, making educational programs. And they were doing quite well in that sphere. However, then the 24th of February came and obviously every single resource of the foundation of Sahih especially had to be thrown on helping, uh, you know, to, to remedy this situation. Uh, so for now, uh, the military division is funded by uh, donations from Ukrainians, uh, people from abroad, so private individuals and certain businesses who wish to support this call. Um, and also we have a variety of partners that supply us either with money or with goods. And then uh, what concerns humanitarian aid is that we do not use the resources, the donations from the public to uh, buy or accumulate humanitarian aid because people only donate for military help, which is completely fine and is understood. So we have a number of Ukrainian uh, organizations and businesses and from abroad, for instance, Caritas, for instance, the Help Ukraine is an initiative, uh, big uh, regional, like big Ukrainian companies like Silpo Food, Karnel, and uh, international companies as well who supply us with actual goods with so with everything diapers medical supplies whatnot even clothing at some point and also we have uh people volunteers from abroad and from ukraine who help us with logistics and then we have very nice people who have agreed to lend us uh their properties for warehouses uh so we have not spent money on the humanitarian aid we do not procure it as for now, uh, because we don't feel like it's correct. People want to fund, you know, drones and people want to fund military projects and we don't want to mix up those two. Uh, we're still, we're actually um, working on accumulating funds, you know, from international uh, organizations, but only for humanitarian aid. So in terms of fin financing, that's how we divide these two, um, these two things. So as not to, you know, it doesn't come from one pot for both, uh, for both. Um, because obviously people have, uh, you know, some people want to fund 
most Ukrainians want to fund military aid, but people from abroad want to help us with 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 uh, you know medical supplies or hygienic products. So uh, we kind of have it's not it's one team, but kind of two divisions, so as not to mix those two up. And what's the magnitude of the operation at this point? How many people you have do you have, and and you know what's the what's the what's the total value of the material you've been able to convey and how can people help if they want to get involved? Um, I can only, like, the numbers I have in my head now, so we have bypassed a, th- a thousand tons uh, of uh, humanitarian aid some uh, month ago or something. Now I think we're going to somewhere like 2,000 tons of aid. Um, in terms of money, I couldn't tell you, but it's, uh, it, it's that he, on his Facebook, his official page, uh, he's... Uh, um, um, writing about every single uh, dollar or hryvnia we spend on, on, uh, on the, his procurement department spends on the military aid. So we try to communicate every single fundraiser we do. For instance, if we want to buy like an unmanned uh, flying vehicle of some sorts, UAV, or we, um, you know, we then write uh, about it and then people can submit it to it and then we take a picture of it and then we take a picture of where we send it when the, uh, you know, if it, if it, if it helped, if it, if we're able to do it you know, securely so as not to give away the positions it's going to and whatnot. So we are very, so he's page, he's communicating very well every single um, dollar that we spend. And you can see it there also, we have a website, uh, pertulafoundation.org, and then there is Pertula Aid that is concerned with humanitarian uh, aid. Uh, so you can read all of those reports uh, over there. And also um, there are, uh, there is information about where to send aid and how to do it if people want to join uh, in that way. And also there are financial information about uh, from our foundation if one people want to uh, help us uh, with monetarily. So you can we are trying to be as transparent as possible. So everything that goes to our foundation is being posted online live that same very moment it arrives and has to do with cars, with um, um protective equipment uh, with uh, drones and whatnot so uh, you sh- if anybody's interested go find Sadhi Pratula on Facebook and we write uh, daily about these these things also um, one of the one of the more uh, you know, interesting approaches we had is that one of our volunteers who have helped us with uh, logistics and transportation he was actually driving goods from Lviv to Kiev in the beginning and then from Kiev to the east of Ukraine um, his family they're collectors of art and they have donated a, a picture, a, a, a painting from their own private collection uh, from a very, very famous Ukrainian artist, Marina Primachenko. And we had an auction and we were able to sell this picture for f- uh, half a million dollars. And that money w- went to uh, buying a transportation for Ukrainian troops. Um, so people help in these ways. Also, we're open to these kinds of projects. We have experience uh, doing them. And then, uh, so we have a, a lot of people helping us. Uh, I think only in uh, Kiev warehouse, we have around uh, 100 volunteers and a team working around the clock there. We have, uh, I think, about 30 volunteers, uh, me included, working in the Lviv warehouse. We also have a partner warehouse in Poland where we're able to, you know, store goods while they're awaiting their shipment to Ukraine. We also have opened an office, uh, I cannot specify where, but a bit closer to the front line. So the logistics only takes like up one day now. Uh, and I think, and then there's headquarters in Kiev. So I think we have a couple of hundred volunteers uh, and workers who, um, you know, who, who work actually around the clock to make sure this whole system works effectively and fast. So in your capacity as a communications professional, I'm interested in your thoughts on the information war that has taken place concurrently with uh, the 
ground operation. Uh, one of the things that I've been struck by is how how stunningly good the Ukrainian uh, both government but also civil society has been at information operations, at influencing uh, Western press, at countering Russian disinformation. Uh, and I'm, I'm interested for your, your thoughts on that. How did, how did uh, uh, I think as long as information operations are studied, the Ukrainian uh, 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 conduct of this information war will be you know, studied in information war colleges from now until the end of time. Uh, how did it happen? Um, in my opinion, um, well, because the war actually has begun in 2014, we had a couple of years to, you know, figure out the official position of Ukraine. And, um, and his family, they're collectors of art. And they have donated a, a picture, a, a, a painting from their own private collection from a very, very famous Ukrainian artist, Marina Primochenko. And we had an auction and we were able to sell this picture for f uh, half a million dollars. And that money w went to uh, buying a transportation for Ukrainian troops. Um, so people help in these ways. Also, we're open to these kinds of projects. We have experience uh, doing them. And then uh, so we have a, a lot of people helping us, uh, I think. Only in uh, Kiev warehouse, we have around uh, 100 volunteers and a team working around the clock there. We have, uh, I think, about 30 volunteers, uh, me included, working in the Lee warehouse. We also have a partner warehouse in Poland where we're able to, you know, store goods while they're awaiting their shipment to Ukraine. We also have opened an office, uh, I cannot specify where, but a bit closer to the front line. So the logistics only takes like up to one day now. Uh, and I think, and then there's headquarters in Kiev. So I think we have a couple of hundred volunteers uh, and workers who, um, you know, who, who work actually around the clock to make sure this whole system works effectively and fast. So in your capacity as a communications professional, I'm interested in your thoughts on the information war that has taken place concurrently with uh, the ground operation. Uh, one of the things that I've been struck by is how how stunningly good the Ukrainian uh, both government but also civil society has been at information operations, at influencing uh, Western press, at countering Russian disinformation. Uh, and I'm I'm interested for your your thoughts on that. How did how did uh, uh, I think as long as information operations are studied, the Ukrainian uh, 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 conduct of this information war will be, you know, studied in information war colleges from now until the end of time. Uh, how did it happen? Um, in my opinion, um, well. Because the war actually has begun in 2014, we had a couple of years to, you know, figure out the official position of Ukraine and um, on, on most of these matters. Uh, so uh, we've had our share of experience. The problem was that 
we were not as successful as we are now because the interest to the war in, in the east of Ukraine and the occupation of Crimea has not been as, a, you know, as big as it is now. Uh, but we have been explaining and telling people these things, these facts that we present to them for a good eight years. So when the opportunity, I'm sorry to say so, um, has arisen, we were prepared. And Ukrainian public is very educated. Uh, there is this kind of... Um, uh, you know, for some reason, there has been this opinion that Ukrainians, you know, don't cannot communicate because, you know, the we are a corrupt, poor country from Eastern Europe that nobody cares about. And for some reason, the expectations, both in the humanitarian aspect, meaning, you know, information warfare and, and politics, but also military aspect were you know, very low. Uh, the Westerners have projected that we're going to lose this war and have been preparing for this kind of insurgency situation. But Ukrainians, uh, we have learned from our experiences, even as sad of an experience as we have had. Um, so uh, when the 24th of February arrived, um, most Ukrainians who are, you know, who could speak uh, any foreign language and even Ukrainian or Russian uh, had, you know, this kind of... Um, set of topics already set in their heads, in fact, because we have learned them a lot by explaining them a lot, by trying to draw attention to the war before the 24th of February 2022. So we were kind of prepared, and Ukrainians, uh, we are very underestimated and have been uh, in that regard, but we, and also, we are very passionate about this. And then the world is changing. Uh, this war is a sort of, it's, it's a new war. It's a war, as you said, the information warfare, the public takes part in it as well. So, and the um, technologies that have been developing since even 2014 and since, you know, the war in Georgia in 2008 was different because the situation um, with internet and with media has been very different. So we have this basically a whole um, collective, you can call them like, psyops division of just regular Ukrainians who have, you know, fixed opinions and are armed with facts. And uh, if any opportunity arises, they will use it to explain and they never get tired of it. So I think that has been and, and also it has it's it's the only weapon some people have and people really want to support you know, both our domestic, um, you know, military efforts and also international efforts. So this passion in, in, in combination with awareness and with um, knowledge has, has given this effect. People in Ukraine are very engaged in internal and external politics. Uh, that is proven by revolutions we have had, so three in 30 years, uh, by the extremely educated and extremely successful civic society that has been able to push real change in Ukraine. Uh, even though we are perceived as this corrupt young country, Ukraine actually has been making amazing strides in terms of freedom of speech, in terms of democracy, in terms of reforms as well. Not only thanks to the governments, there are things that all of them should be criticized for and praised for, but our people have been a have been drivers for change. So I have, I was not in any way surprised when I saw what I saw online and offline and on TV and whatnot. So I'm, I'm interested for your sense. I have spent a lot of time over the last two and a half months trying to plug into that Ukrainian conversation. Um, and uh, uh, it's actually hard without guidance. Um, so to people who may be listening, who want to, want to you know, who want to plug into that, that internal information discussion what are the what are the key 
mechanisms that an outsider can do that to educate him or herself? Um, I'm going to give you a very, I'm going to give you an example, but because I believe that explaining an example is, is, is a bit you know, more um, effective. So, and, and I will just say before you yeah. do that, for me, your Twitter feed was a very important um, entree point um, because you retweet other people, because you, you know, you share, uh, you, you share all kinds of uh, uh, both cultural and news or uh, items. There's just a, uh, it's a very good entry point to uh, the sort of Ukrainian conversation, at least as projected out. And I do urge people, uh, you know, the Twitter translate function is not fabulous for Ukrainian, particularly not for highly idiomatic Ukrainian, but it's not terrible either. And you can, you know, don't be intimidated by the Cyrillic characters that you see. It's, you know, it's one button away from uh, a reasonable approximation in English. Uh, yeah, uh, like a little disclaimer. Mostly, mostly when I write in Ukrainian, it, it has some it, it, Ukrainian language and Ukrainian speech is very highly idiomatic. Yes, not everything is clear in the beginning, but that's why uh, myself and uh, people that are trying, I'm trying to accumulate as many English speaking uh, writers and Twitter personalities as possible on my account so as to, you know, make sure there are more options for foreigners, for English speakers to kind of see that we have many Ukrainians tweeting, especially in English, more than usual to, to educate these things. Twitter has been extremely hel- an extremely helpful tool in that regard. So most of my Ukrainian tweets, uh, I mean, it's a bit funny because I can only imagine what you thought you read. <laughs> some of them are, you know, some inside jokes among Ukrainians, some cultural phenomenon we have created during the war. You know, most of them, it is to do with humor and jokes because that is kind of a very good default mechanism for our psyches here that have been extremely damaged by this whole situation. But as so to give you an example of, of how Ukrainians uh, operate in this kind of information um, environment, um, for instance, we have an issue, we have a, a matter of um, Azov regiment that have been, or still are, not sure at this point, based in, in Mariupol and Azov style. We have, well, I don't want to comment on the situation now very deeply because the government has asked us not to and we are still waiting for the results. But for years and years, there has been a very intentional, and some of it wasn't intentional, but largely it was, uh, disinformation campaign aimed at smearing uh, the concept of Azov regiment, since uh, at the very beginning, uh, obviously, this formation, this military formation have had their issues that were resolved fairly quickly, and Azov has become a legitimate part of Ukrainian military uh, with their own rules, uh, with with the rules in compliance with Ukrainian law and Ukrainian internal politics of the military. So uh, later on, I mean, since 15, 16 or, or whatnot, they have become, uh, become a legitimate and very effective military uh, formation. And But the smear campaign, uh, and I call it smear campaign because that's what it was, because nobody wanted to educate themselves and dig a little bit deeper, was uh, aimed at painting them as these Nazis, people, civilian murdering, un- non-controlled formation of some, you know, fascists or whatnot. And if you... That's why I have actually, I have a very good thread on, on Azov Regiment, what they are. Are they Nazis? Spoiler, not. Uh, how are they changed? How the regiment has changed during the years? And so we have, this smear campaign has been so active that, and we have tried so hard to set the matter straight and to factually kind of dismember this 
disinformation around Azov. That when the time came and when people looked at Ukraine, we actually had the informational resources and proper facts to, you know, kind of help people understand that, yes, there have been issues in the past with many military formations in Ukraine because war in 2014 came very unexpectedly and all sorts of people wanted to join different units. However, as of now, the situation has changed and these people are a legitimate military uh, collective under the command of the, uh, um, um, the you know, the uh, armed forces on military, um, uh, all sorts of operations, whatnot. And so these are legitimate and proper protectors uh, of our country. And the situation they have found themselves in in this war is horrifying. And so some uh, lies and half-truths about them not only do not show a real picture, but also kind of divide public opinion on them. And, you know, people have doubts on whether to save them, whether to not save them. So on this good, we had practice with this. So we had practice with the case of Azov during these years. And so now we're able to steadily and very firmly explain to the public what it really is. And that also had to do with stuff like uh, myself, especially, I was very concerned with the matter of with this opinion before the war that Putin wants to attack Ukraine because Ukraine has NATO aspirations. And my job at the beginning was um, to explain to people that it's not just that, it's not about NATO, it's that Putin and Russia has always viewed Ukraine as a non-state, as something of a soul of theirs, as a resource, as whatever, but not a, a, a real country. And I was trying to do this before the 24th, uh, 24th of February, kind of. But repeating these things over and over again uh, really helped us later on to explain these issues, to explain that whatever Russia is doing in Ukraine should be treated as and is genocide. And there are all of these cultural and political reasons why. So we have had our share of practice. That is the only explanation because Ukrainians are so used to not being heard. I, I regret to say this, but if, this, if the occupation of Crimea had been treated differently, if the occupation of Crimea had been treated the way the Budapest Memorandum saw it, should have seen it as, the situation now would be very different and I think would be better. But we have what we have, and so that's, that's how I'm going to finish this long tangent. <laughs> uh, just for those who don't know, the Budapest Memorandum was an international law instrument signed uh, 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 at the time Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons in which uh, the British, the Americans, and the Russians all guaranteed the territorial integrity of Ukraine. Uh, few modern uh, uh, international law documents have been dealt with with greater contempt or violence than that one. Uh, Mert, uh, the floor is yours, but you have to unmute yourself. Okay, uh, Mert seems to be having trouble. Uh, Utku, uh, the floor is yours. You also need to unmute yourself. Okay, uh, we're gonna we're gonna try this again um, uh, with somebody else. Uh, Zaire, the floor is yours.
Hmm. Uh, Ev? Yeah. <laughs> you hear me? Yes, indeed. Oh, great. Um, actually, I was one. If we go back a little bit uh, about Zelensky, I don't know if you want to talk about it, but um, I was wondering if you thought that, um, well, after the war, Zelensky is likely to become a war hero in some sort, not like national hero. Do you think that um, this way he will be seen will have an impact on how um, your criticism and um, uh, comments about rule of law is, is the way you rule he, 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 your criticism about the rule of law will be received differently and will it make your work harder or you know like yeah um of course there are always risks and but what i can say for sure is that again our main priority is winning this war and preserving our people and saving their lives when the war is over and when we win uh obviously um uh, we will come back to uh rebuilding our country both physically and i mean physically rebuilding cities but also rebuilding our democratic procedures and uh, rebuilding what we call you know proper free uh european country that ukraine uh, undoubtedly is uh so uh, i don't think any I, i i will i think uh for a very long time still have huge respect for mr zelensky however if he chooses to do something that my colleagues, I, or our civic society deems, uh, you know, either unhelpful, ineffective, or corrupt and whatnot, he will get his fair share of criticisms. Again, Ukrainians do have very, um, very significant experience in that regard. We have had wars in 2014, and since then, we had a different president, and we have also supported certain um, politics of his when it was time for that. However, The matters of corruption, especially in the military, the matters of political corruption have been on the agenda during the wartime period. So, um, uh, so the, the, the fact of the matter is, for now, in this, uh, we still have martial law, so everything is suspended for now. However, if it all comes to an end and we win and we will have to rebuild the country, President Zelensky will be criticized undoubtedly. And uh, we, in our term, it's not criticism for the sake of criticism. It is our way of Um, kind of leading the government in the way that Ukrainian public wants it to go. It's something that Russians do not understand. For instance, they always say like, your president is very weak because he only does what his people want. And that is, yes, as a matter of fact, what democracy is and what Russians are unable to understand in their core. But this is what we do. We don't criticize our politicians because we don't like them. We may like them, we may not like them. But it is our way of telling them the will of, of the people. And that is completely understood. And I do not think that my personal respect for his wartime efforts will cloud my judgment in terms of the rule of law and democracy. Lunch stuff. The floor is yours. That's a sentence I never thought I would say. Uh, but please unmute yourself and your question. Hello. Um, yes, it's my, it's my mission to tell people that lunchtime is any time you want it to be. Um, so, uh, Melania, I've been following you for a long time, and I, I think this is more a comment than anything. I, I think voices like yours which are educated, rational, and clear, have, done, have gone a long way to prevent uh, Ukraine from being yet another overlooked tragedy, which people turn away from. Um, I think, you know, I, I really think it's exemplary, and I, I just commend, I, I just want more voices like yours to be heard, really. So that's about it, really. Keep on fighting. Well, Thank you. I uh, appreciate this. Thank you. Uh, and please, uh, lunchtime, uh, lunch stuff, um, uh, 
uh, feel free to elevate Melania's voice uh, voice by uh, uh, retweeting uh, this spaces so that people can hear it. All right, we're going to go back to three uh, questioners that uh, I had trouble we had trouble hearing from earlier. Uh, please unmute yourselves when I call on you. Uh, Mert, uh, the floor is yours. Mert Kute. All right, I, I think I'm giving up on that one. Um, how about Utku? Hello. Hello, your question, please. Uh, okay, we took stand by Ukraine after that. I'm sorry? We took stand by Ukraine after that. I want to continue in Turkish for permission. Um, I don't think uh, we have enough Turkish listeners. Uh, I am not a Turkish speaker, and um, I don't think our guest is either, although if she's... Uh, uh, she should speak up, and you're welcome to direct a question to her in Turkish. No, uh, sadly, I do not speak Turkish. Uh, however, as I am, I would like to comment that as I am both appreciative of um, military support that Turkey has provided us with and selling us the arms we need, uh, but also I would like some if somebody from Turkey is listening to take uh, very, uh, you know, to, to, to pay attention to what your government is doing in cooperation with Russia as well. I know your country is basically can afford to uh, do whatever. The military is rel like it's relatively strong and relatively independent, but please, and I know there is a problem with freedom of speech in Turkey as well, but please, if you support Ukraine, if you think that support of Turkey should be, we should have more support, please pay attention to our internal and external politics in Turkey and Turkish government towards Russia. I know it's something that is a bit difficult to, to ask, but nevertheless, there have been some, um, some worrying tendencies. So uh, if you could pay attention to that, that would have been great. Okay, so we have a question from uh, Phosphin8888. Uh, please unmute yourself and the floor is yours. All right, we're going to move on. Zafer, the floor is yours. So I am not sure why we are having so much uh, difficulty uh, hearing from people that we're calling on today. I apologize for this. Um, uh, but uh, three of you speak. All right, Umut, the floor is yours. Or not. Ev has another question. Uh, yeah, um, earlier you said like, we're so used not to be heard. And I, uh, I've i been spending quite a bit of time on other Twitter spaces and that's kind of what I've heard for, from other Ukrainians as well. Um, you seem to feel like, uh, Westerners often speak for you instead of you. Uh, and I was wondering if you there was something particular that you were feeling like we were getting wrong when we talk about Ukraine. Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of things. Um, however, my biggest area of concern among some of Western pundits and public has been that 
this war is for some reason still being treated as some kind of proxy war. And I have had my share of people have shared a lot of their thoughts and how this war is the same as Afghanistan war and whatnot. Um, and um, that is my biggest issue, because whenever people talk about some proxy wars between NATO and Russia and whatnot, you kind of erase the fact that Ukrainians are a you know sovereign state with their own wills and whatnot. So that has been largely my concern is that even though on our example, in our situation, Ukrainians are, Ukrainians are fighting for these values in this Western collective of countries, but also some of some of the people need to understand that it's not some trading coin some people said oh, well you should secede some of the territories you should give up to their demands because that's how you save lives uh, valid points in a theoretical world but in practice we talk about real people that have their own uh, aspirations that want to live as a separate country that we are actually quite a used for to living as a sovereign free state and b we have fighting way before our indians so we would like to be treated as equals in that regard because we have proven that we are. And that is mostly my concern. It's also the fact that people take upon themselves to decide, you know, uh, um, about, you know, ammunition and, and, and uh, um, weapons supply to Ukraine. That if we supply in Ukraine with weapons, then Russians will or will not escalate. The issue is that we are already at a point that, Further escalation is just going to be the same as it is. Need to remind you what happened in Bucha, what happens in Mariupol right now. Uh, not supplying Ukraine with the with the with our with what we need, with what our general staff has been talking about in the government, is actually working uh, working towards strengthening Russia. So I wish that our voices. It's not. It just. It seems sometimes that these uh, talks about supplying Ukraine with whatnot are kind of. They're happening without Ukraine, you know, that, okay, they have requested something, now let's discuss whether to give it or not. If the West, if the world wants Ukraine to succeed, if that is their official position, if Ukrainians need to win this war, then Ukrainian, um, you know, whatever we ask for, we should be given. That is just how it works. So I, I know that people are scared of World War Three, but in reality, it just seems so that some people would rather have see Russia win so if Russia wins, then, you know, um, it's kind of the schizophrenic approach. We want Ukraine to win, but we don't want to escalate because if Ukraine wins, then Russia will attack, you know, nuclearly or whatever. So uh, that's not the reality. The reality is that for 30 years, this country has suffered from all sorts of aggressions from Russia. So how much further does it have to go for people to start understanding that only by stopping Russia will there be no escalation? So that is... That will always be my main talking point, because there's nothing more that we need right now than military aid. Financial aid is extremely important as well, and especially when rebuilding the country and helping the economy. But we only get to do these things when we win. So I, I urge on you as well, if you want Ukraine to succeed in this, keep on pressuring your governments and your politicians into making these decisions actually happen. I'm very thankful for all of those for the Lend-Lease program or whatnot. But now we see some politicians in Germany and Europe taking steps back and taking their words back and, you know, having second thoughts about whether should or shouldn't. The only way this works is that we win militarily and then and then it all, it all goes away. That's just how it is. Boris, the floor is yours. Yes, Melania, uh, thank you for your uh, effort. It's, it's, uh, I, I mean, I'm also having Ukrainian accent, but yours is much better. And you have a beautiful, beautiful name. 
Uh, and uh, thank you again for doing what you do. And uh, you're a great speaker. Uh, just small, rem a little remark to add to what you said. People don't understand Ukraine. Ukrainian democratically elected government have no means to give up territories uh, unless it's a national referendum, right? It's first will will lead to uprising in Ukraine if government give up territories without national referendum, and second. It will cause people on the occupied territory suffering. Don't you understand? People uh, like French uh, authorities who, for example, uh, allegedly uh, pushing Ukraine toward uh, giving up territories. Don't you understand? There are people living on the territories. If, if kids, they need future. They don't need repressions, con concentration camps on these territories. That's what Russians do in Donbass. They establish concentration camps. So Sorry, we need a question. Sorry, that's it. Just thank you, Melania. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Noli, the floor is yours. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, I, actually, I just wanted to uh, add my two cents uh, to what Melania, uh, Melania uh, said before. is about uh, people in the West who are basically afraid of escalation of nuclear war and uh, things like that. I just wanted to add that, actually, uh, uh, just think for a moment how, uh, how, how do we counter the situation when we actually, when we really... Uh, think of 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 a, of a nuclear country using deterrence weapon, which nuclear weapon is uh, as a as an attacking as an attacking weapon. So basically, it's it's what Russia what what Russia has been doing for uh, for decades. They just been uh, using fear as just you know as another kind of weapon. So they made uh, a lot of people in the West believe that they uh, they will not stop. Uh, no matter what, so if they lose, they will somehow escalate it to, uh, to the nuclear war, to the uh, World War Three, and things like that. But uh, just think for a moment: how how is it even possible uh, if they if they uh, failed so badly in Ukraine? How they how 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 can they possibly escalate it to the whole new level? What will they do? Like, will they attack Germany or I don't know Finland or entire world? With their nuclear weapons, just because they're losing Ukraine, it's, it just doesn't make any sense. It's just another part of their, you know, uh, informational warfare. They make, they try to make uh, the people in the West uh, afraid of them, and okay. uh, th that's just, yeah, that, that's my point basically. Thank you. Thank you, Melania. What do you think? Is mo is Russia mostly bluff with respect to escalation into other places in Eastern Europe, or is there something to the idea that uh, you know, uh, that we need to take seriously. Uh, my personal opinion is that uh, nuclear weapons is a whole different topic. I mean, it's not only about having them; it's about maintaining them, and that is expensive. And knowing the extent of corruption in Russia, and we can that we can observe, especially in in in, in regard to their military intervention in Ukraine. Obviously, uh, I do not think that all is good in that department in Russia. However. I do still believe that it's partly cyber saber rattling. So obviously, it's a lot of bluff and whatnot. However, Russia is unexpected. Uh, uh, they do a lot of unexpected things. And again, uh, I was a non-believer in a full-on scale invasion in Ukraine on the twenty-fourth. So um, it's difficult for me to say that. However, giving in to that fear is another yet another mistake. So uh, so what? I mean, I know it sounds terrible, uh, rad radical, but. Uh, 
oh, when Russia says they're they're going to threaten the whole world with nuclear weapons, should the world give in to that? So it just means that any country now who has a nuclear weapon can do basically whatever they want. So why did we even do the whole democracy thing? Why do we even have all these charters and all these, you know, international uh, institutions that have to do with the uh, security, you know, NATO and whatnot? So if just some country says, oh, we're going to strike you uh, with a nuclear weapon, should everybody just cave in? That is not our opinion. That is Ukrainians proving that that is not our opinion because if we were scared of that, we would we would have just given up at the very beginning. So uh, we we should look into uh, ways to still punish that country and especially, of course, punish them for making these claims that they for making these threats. It's very important. Showing Russia your weak side and being scared of them is like being scared of a bully. You're just encouraging them anyway. So that is that that is just what I think about this. They will do whatever they want if they are if you let them. So you should punish them before uh, they make these decisions. It should hurt. Um, I know the sanctions should work in theory, and you know, but punishing them on the ground, showing that they're weak. Um, is is I think you should look into um, I think Timothy Snyder on his Twitter I urge you to read his thread on this very issue he said that uh, Ru- Putin and Russians do not live in a real world they live in virtual world Putin is not cornered if he feels cornered he will withdraw from Ukraine and proclaim victory on national TV and Russians will believe it and he will be fine it's not that he doesn't have a way out. He does have a way out. His main concern is his internal power that he still holds on to. So if he cho- if he sees that he's losing, I sincerely doubt he's going to push it further because he does not need to. He lives in a non-real place where reality can be whatever it is. If he needs to declare victory for his nation on his TV, he will do it. Ukraine is a real place with real consequences. So again, being scared of that, of those threats, is just feeding into prolonging this war. It does not make it stop. He will not calm down. He either knows he's losing and he will, quote unquote, win in his country and Russians will be perfectly happy with that. He will take, tell them whatever they want to hear and they will accept it, even though if some some level they do not agree and it will be fine. His main, at this point, in my opinion, apart from the objective of gaining more ter- territory from Ukraine, he's also obviously very concerned in his internal politics. And But he he's not, if he needs to win, absolutely he will. He will just say on the state TV, we have won the war. And Russian public will be satisfied and will believe it anyway. So please look into Timothy Snyder's thoughts on this issue. He does make um, exceptionally reasonable arguments and it will give you more food for thought in that regard. Ward, you get the last question. Or not. I'm not sure uh, whether uh, this is an intentional type of trolling by a certain type of people who ask to ask questions and then don't do it. But I have to say it's uh, mildly annoying, whether it's, uh, whether it's intentional or a technical failure. Uh, we are going to leave it there. Melania Podolyak, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for the questions. Thank you for, for promoting our voices. And thank you for, for that, giving me this platform to speak. And I try to, I try to speak to as many people that are willing to listen, especially if you're active in, in your communities and can help us uh, achieve the victory. That is, that is what I, what I think I, uh, that's my main concern. So talking to people like you is, is very, very nice. Thank you. We will be back tomorrow uh, at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Our guest will be Katerina Bukatsky of the 
Shadows Project. Uh, she will have, by the time she's on, a new article out in Lawfare on information wars on Wikipedia involving uh, Ukrainian culture and, uh, and history. Uh, again, that'll be at 3.30 tomorrow. And again, if you are listening to this, uh, please, whether you mean to use it or not, subscribe to the uh, podcast feed of Live from Ukraine and share it on Twitter uh, so that others who can't join uh, live have an opportunity to uh, hear discussions like the one we had today. That's it for now. We will talk to you tomorrow. Live from Ukraine is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Uh, You know, the engineering, I'm doing it myself because it's Twitter spaces, but it is produced and edited by folks at Goat Rodeo. Thanks for listening.